Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Adam Levy, and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. In this six-part series, Business of Science, we're exploring how to commercialize your research. In the first half of the series, we looked at the crucial steps of setting up your business, pitching your idea, getting it patented, and working with your tech transfer office. But what happens after you've set up? Well, then you really need to get things established and, hopefully, begin to grow. And it's that process of growth that we're focused on in today's episode. Barbara Domain Heyman is entrepreneur-in-residence at the Francis Crick Institute in London. By supporting businesses in early stages, she can see very well what the crucial elements are. And a clear leadership can make all the difference. Creating a vision and making sure that everybody really... Um, understands what you're trying to achieve and kind of agrees with it and and really throws themselves into it um, wholeheartedly. I mean, I think that's something that you you really have to have. I mean, you have to have it in academia as well. But certainly in an early stage company, um, you know, people can't be half-hearted about things. They, They really have to commit and it's hard work and it's very long hours and it's uncertain So you have to have that degree of kind of really wanting to do this and really having a conviction about it. And you need to look for that in the team of people that you build as well. Um, If they're just interested in having a kind of nine-to-five job, then probably not the right person to help you build a startup. Throughout this series, we're speaking with entrepreneurs like Barbara about their experiences, as well as experts on all the topics we're discussing. One of the entrepreneurs we spoke with is Javier Garcia Martinez, a chemist based at the University of Alicante in Spain and founder of Rive Technology. Rive Technology uses nanotechnology to improve catalysts. This has given them some stiff competition while establishing their business. Competing with, with the biggest uh, companies probably in the world that are also producing similar catalysts has been uh, a, 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 an amazing challenge. So it has been a little bit like David and Goliath. I mean, uh, we, we were the small fish in a, in, in a pond uh, with, with a lot of big fishes. And while you're still growing, it can be normal to have this feeling of fighting against the odds. So what can you do to shift the odds in your favour and avoid your startup prematurely shutting down? 
Here's Daniel Batten, an investor with Exponential Founders Fund and coach with Beyond the Ceiling. Out of all the reasons that caused failure, if you put together all the business and technical factors, that stuff like, you know, your quality control, your product, the science itself, um, and then the business side, the product market fit, the, the reaction from customers, um, competitive pressures, regulatory stuff, all that stuff together counts for 35% of why companies fail. So the other 65%, this is according to 49 different Silicon Valley-based venture capital companies, was the people, was actually the human-centric reasons or the human factors. So Daniel's message is clear. While you're growing, don't forget the human factors. This means having a clear vision from the leadership, as Barbara explained. But it also means ensuring that the leadership is taking the time to transfer the skills among the staff. I see plenty of companies that might be growing 20% every month or 200%, 300% every year. But then what happens, they get to a certain size and then the leader has been trying to do it all themselves and they haven't uh, reproduced that leadership DNA in their company. And then it comes to some point, maybe they're opening up a new office or and they're doing a cap raise, capital raise at the same time and and you're also trying to sell stuff and and suddenly you can't do everything at once and no one else can do it as effectively because you haven't grown the next generation of leaders. Before you can grow this next generation of leaders, you actually have to hire them. Vivu is COO of Helio Heat, working on a solar power technology. She explains that growing a team is much more complex than just filling vacancies. To find the right people, actually. I think that's the most challenge, actually. Since we are located in the southern Germany, in a really small city, so it's not really big and and it it doesn't have so much to offer the city by itself. And so to get people there is quite hard. I I think that that's the most challenge to really find or or to reach the right audience and the right people to, to work for you. Growing your team and your business can present an almost paradoxical challenge. Patrick Ankatil is founder and CEO of Portal Instruments with a technology to replace needle-based syringes with needle-free devices. He explains the tension between needing to grow in order to expand your business, but at the same time needing resources in order to grow. Uh, that alone is uh, actually difficult because it, it actually takes time, it takes resources to do that. And then on top of things, you also have to look on the the cost side of things that you have enough finances as well to be able to scale. So it's almost like a dance where you're always, um, how to say that? I mean, you're always in playing, you're always playing catch up. So I think I think that's uh, the other thing that happens during scaling that's so interesting is that you start to see a, a few. Um, you, you basically start to see where things are breaking down. Right? You start to see not only at the organizational level, as we just talked, but you also start to see it in your processes. So uh, you may remember that uh, you know, a few years ago, um, when Tesla was um, increasing uh, production capacity, all the problems started to happen, started to happen with, with Model 3, basically. And uh, they almost went uh, under because of that. So things are more complicated, but you also have less room of maneuvering at the same time. So to find out a little better how you can walk this tightrope, I spoke with an expert on scaling up. Charles Christie is head of commercial solutions of Ibex Dedicate at Lonza, which works as a partner to pharmaceutical and biotech companies. So I I try to translate customers' uh, needs into what we call commercial solutions. So 
for example, Moderna, which the vaccine, which is, I guess, hot news at the moment. That's one of the projects that I, that I helped bring to commercialization. Basically, I try and translate the customer's process, what their risks are, some of the uncertainties, and try and come up with a creative solution um, to take that through the, the development pathway all the way through to commercial and, and hopefully supplying patients with the drugs that they need most. So Charles has a lot of experience thinking about scale and what can help and hinder a company from growing. So I started out by asking him at what point in the process a company should start thinking about its scaling up strategy. Well, to be honest, it should come up from the outset, although there's plenty of uncertainties right at the beginning when you're starting, you know, you need to look, uh, particularly one of the lessons is to, to try to look at what it would be when it grows up or when it goes industrial, because what the product needs to be is a very important consideration from the get-go. And by that, I mean cost of goods, availability of raw materials, scale, stability, all of these things are things that you need to plan for success from the beginning. So it's never too early. Sure, there'll be uncertainties and you'll need a plan A or plan B from that point of view. But, you know, we've got the, the, the saying that, that, you know, you plan for success and if you don't plan, you're sure to fail. So Once uh, an organization is ready to start scaling up or at least to start planning to scale up, what are the technical challenges they need to be mindful of in that process? The first thing really is to start from a solid base. It sounds almost obvious, but to start from somewhere where, you know, from a from an IP, from a freedom to operate, that, that you're able to do that. And then secondly, if any materials are biological in origin, that you have the, re- the, you know, the freedom to use those and that those have a documented and safe background. You know the purity, you know the biological safety. And that's a, a lesson if you don't, obviously that comes back with, with tremendous problems in the development, even having to start again. Then I think if you go forward f- looking at scaling up, the, the key thing, particularly if you're a small or you know, a university or, or others, is to avoid using materials and av- avoid using processes that cannot be scaled. And by that I mean quite often in a, in a university laboratory one might use quite exotic chemistry, quite exotic resins or affinity resins, things that work extremely well in the laboratory environment, but just are too expensive or unavailable at scale for commercializing a product. So I think is really that plan to succeed is really looking and going, you know, almost a risk-based approach saying this is the final scale, it's a thousand liters or it's 10,000 liters and I need 500 kilograms of this material, I need 50 grams of this. Is it available? Is it going to cost me hundreds of millions of dollars, particularly here in the time of pandemic when materials are under short supply or being used a lot by by many, many pharma companies? Having that security of supply and knowing that you can take it through from you know, laboratory scale to you know, medium scale right up to full commercial scale is very, very important. And that will prevent tremendous problems later on and, and there are examples with companies that have had affinity resins that, that, that cost tens of millions of dollars for, for a batch and obviously that that will make the cost of goods and the, the availability for patients almost impossible. Now when a company is looking to, to produce a product en masse what are the advantages of, of doing that relatively locally versus perhaps uh, having those processes carried out overseas? The commercial process is, is really almost independent of location. For sure, there are locations that are easier in terms of language, in terms of communication. You know, if you're going to work 
in time zones, which are 12 or 15 hours of time zone differences, can be extremely different, difficult for a small company. So I think more it's about convenience at the commercial scale. It's really much better to have a, a scale of operations which gives, gives you a cost of goods and a security of supply. So going to the largest facility possible always reduces the cost of goods, always makes that supply more reliable. And that may not be available locally. So from my point of view, commercial, I don't think it matters as much. And I think in, it's actually in that process of taking it to scale where you need a very close partner um, because there's much more interaction. We've been talking about scaling up the production, but on, on the other side of that, how do you begin to scale up demand and try and reach overseas markets, whether it's with um, a new piece of engineering or, or, or medicine? The, the key to do that is to do scenario planning. And, and the scenario planning is really to, to look at the competitive landscape and to, to then see where you are vis-a-vis the competitors. Are you you know, likely to get to market first? What is the likely dosage of the product? And of course, most of these will, will be wrong. The patient populations will change. The dosing may change depending on the potency or the strength of the product. But it gives you an ability to estimate And from those estimates, you can really then start to say, yeah, we need to scale up to a 5,000 litre process or a 20,000 litre process, or let's say those estimates or those planning uh, processes can then be refined and adapted as you go along the path to commercialization. So you've really got to be planning for success. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. From the from again from the outset. Now, what about the human side of scale? As a business grows, of course, that means growing the the number of people working for the business. How do you handle that, and what new considerations does that raise? I think it's a very important point, Adam. I, I really think that there's two choices there. One is the, as you say, the choice to to, to grow the company, and, and if you if you take the companies typically as at a startup stage, they're they're very entrepreneurial. They're typically a founder. There's, an, there's a core scientific, a very close knit team. They really live and breathe the product. And as you bring on, as you as you would increase the scale of that company, you're actually diluting that core resource. You've got to onboard people. You've got to train them. You've got to really work hard, a to keep that culture of science, but b also not to dilute those key resources as, as you grow. So it's it's one of the biggest challenges. And I think really the second challenge is that core team is really used to science and, and used to maybe fundraising from, from early seed funding and really then has to change to being a commercialization team. How do you commercialize it? What, what, is the, what are the elements of that? And that culture from science to commercialization is a completely different skill set. Some companies do that by growing internally and some companies, for example, will, will, will use partners to outsource. And I guess that's a that's a choice, and it's a very fundamental choice at the beginning of a company is as the as the human considerations. Do you build up an internal team for a single product, which may may progress or may not progress, 
or do you use partners, sponsors, for example, a contract development and, and manufacturing organization? And we would do the manufacturing and all the, the various elements of the, the chemistry, the manufacturing, the controls, the quality. Do you want to grow? And, and how do you change your culture from this early entrepreneurship into a more commercial organization? Do you partner? Do you bring on lots of people at the same time? How do you see this uh, this process of scale, both on, on the human side and the technical side, uh, going wrong uh, for some companies? I think uh, I think the lessons are learned quite, quite often is that, that, that it's about planning and it's about communication, that you've really got to not have one plan. You need to have multiple plans. You need to be able to adapt as you go through the life cycle of the product or biotherapeutic and have a plan B and a plan C and, and really adapt. The second thing, I think one of the elements that we've seen is that there's quite often these companies go far too fast at the beginning and they make compromises. And I think the compromises can be, you know, in terms of quality, in terms of robustness of the process or some of the analyst glasses that may be needed. And that will come back and bite. So it's going fast enough to be competitive and to get the product through to the market, but without those compromises, which will either cause a regulatory hold on the product or the need to go back and repeat a, 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 an element of that product, whether that's repeat a study or repeat a manufacturing step that can really cause a six-month or a year delay. So I think that that element of really how do you take enough risk to be fast and to be flexible and agile, but without compromising the quality of the product, because that's really where you want to be. See, all of these elements need to be built in from the beginning of the process. I wonder if you have any stories or anecdotes of times you've seen this really uh, not go right for, for a company or for, for a group. Actually, unfortunately, it's one of the major ones. If, <laughs> if you look, if you look in, in Food and Drug Administration in the US is one of the, the organizations which, which qualifies and, and, and authorizes biological medicines. And the most of their rejections are, are really around product quality or around product robustness. And those delays can be six months to 12 months and can actually mean the company either doesn't make it first to market and then loses tremendous market share or runs out of money or has to refinance because the cash burn, if you have to go back and repeat six months or a, a year or even another clinical study, that, that delay and that cash burn can, can really jeopardize the future of the company. We, we see it far, far too often. I think that's why in, certainly in biotherapeutics, you, you see now with monoclonal antibodies, with vaccines, people coming to, to companies like, like Lonza and, and like Big Pharma, where they have platform processes which are proven and that, are, that have really stood the test of time. So it, it's, it's a race to be first, but the risk is to avoid these sort of catastrophic errors which de derail you and, and mean you've got to repeat a development pro project. So what should companies that are still at a fairly early stage be doing to prepare for these questions of scale that are going to come up further down the line? Quite often companies now coming back to these lessons learned actually do a lot of these de-risking activities now earlier on in, in the development. So people look, particularly in biotherapeutics, these little studies called manufacturability, stability, formulation, ease of use, these types of studies that can be done 
early on really then pay off later on in development because you know then the process is able to be manufactured. Money invested early on in these types of critical questions almost always pays off. If a company does choose to partner up to help make these questions of scale and growth more manageable, what do they have to be mindful of to make this relationship as fruitful as possible? When you do have a partner and and you work with a company or an outsourcing partner for for these activities, two or three lessons there I think are are very critical. One is to, to, you're going to partner with somebody, it takes a long time to, to, to set that partnership up. You have to invest a lot of time and resource into that. I think that's critical. And I think lessons there are about trust and about communication identify risks, be very transparent and open with each other. That partnership, if you're going to start with a company, that's going to be a partnership that can last for five or 10 years or even longer. And and it's critical to the success of a small company. So don't just see it as a throw it over the fence and, and, and you're paying money to get a service. I think definitely invest more time in that. Look at that as a partnership where it's going to grow together over-communicate at the beginning, even to those meetings every week or two weeks and, and only last five or 10 minutes, that effort at the beginning will pay dividends as you go through that product development cycle. That was Charles Christie. As things grow from what may have been a research project and into a fully-fledged business, you're going to be increasingly relying on other people. Vi, who we heard from earlier, explains that this can easily present challenges. Since there are also many people in, involved, like manufacturers and subcontractors and something, and then they have somebody is sick or something, then everything is also delayed. So, so that's something we, we always have to deal with. And in our next episode, the fifth in the series, we'll be talking about exactly this, how to deal with setbacks, whether that's a deal falling through or a global pandemic. Because if there's one thing you can expect in business, it is, of course, the unexpected. Stay tuned for that episode. This has been Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Adam Levy. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.